In today's quest, we meet a king that is the inspiration behind a Lord of the Rings character whose entire reign is swirled in mystery. This is the quest for power. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Quest for Power. My name is Scott, and I am here with, once again, with my co-host. I am Michael. And in case you are new to the show, we are ranking and reviewing all of European monarchs from the early Middle Ages to World War I. So if you did not listen to our previous episode, of course, we always encourage you to listen because we're going to keep saying it over and over again is that history is sequential. You're going to want to listen to the story in order, and it's going to provide a lot of context for some of the work that we have laid out here today. So let's have a little segue away from that, and let's get into our ever-so-interesting lives. Michael, what's up? Uh, not too much. Just um, slowly losing my l mind at the terrible officiating in the NFL. I think it's week five for those listening later on. Uh, and it, um, it's not even about the Packers. It's about other teams. This one person became the first person in history to get a roughing the passer call while holding the ball. Wow. You know, I thought that was just like a joke, not like an actual thing, because I only follow football when it's convenient, which is why I did see a bit of the Packers game. Uh, what was it about a week ago? Because I was commenting and I just happened to be in a bar at the time. And I was like, oh, you know, this is kind of fun. Watch, watch the Packers game. And I assume that they lost. No, they won that week. Really? They won, they won last week. They did not win this week in London. Who did they play? Uh, last week they pay, played the Patriots. This week they played the Giants. All right, and they really beat the Patriots, like because it looked like not a great game for them. No, no, it did not. I we somehow managed to barely beat a third string backups backup quarterback who was a rookie. Wait, who had that? Who had the the third string? Uh, the Patriots did. Oh. <laughs> that's that's really bad i saw some yeah. of the game and i was like man i can't believe that this game is even this close to begin with i think i left because the worst part about football is the the commercial breaks get in the way <laughs> yeah. so i i i was there for a while like so but i ended up leaving before the game came to its conclusion but I, I'm dumbfounded that they actually won because I it looked for certain like that their game was slipping. So that's the great thing about the NFL. Anyone can win at any time with the power of penalties. Yes, the power of penalties and the power of just failing at the last minute. Yeah. Well, with you know the the fun and horrible officiating, I guess makes exciting games for somebody. But. <laughs> Ugh, that's that's pretty rank yeah what have you been up to uh let's see so i've been i had a little vacation for myself got to go out to yellowstone uh do some hiking Ooh, that's exciting i was pretty darn thrilled except for the heights 
Hate yeah. heights. Can't stand them. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. The the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone, I think it's called. And there's like, I think it's like called like the Grand View or the Grand Point, something like that. And it was quite grand, but also it was awful. Like you go through this like this bridge and it feels like not that wide to someone who doesn't like heights. And then you get closer to these rocks, which are like, I don't know, maybe three feet tall. So enough to just trip you if you go over the edge. And then the, the pathway slopes towards the path of doom. Like all in all, like, you know, you start feeling as bad as I do. You're just like, I just don't want to be on this thing. I can understand that. But apart from that, you know, it was really beautiful. The weather, awesome. Hiking, wonderful. And did not really succumb to altitude sickness for being much higher than I normally am. All in all, successful. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Now that we got a little bit of that out of the way, and I got to do a little bragging and boasting about my little Yellowstone misadventures. So we're back off to episode five now. And we've had an empty throne once again. It seems like nobody ever truly uh, gets to live forever. So what do we have today? Ah, that's the exciting part about our podcast. We get a new man or woman every every time. Uh, today, the Visigoths raised a man named Theodoric upon his shield, making him Theodoric, first of his name, King of the Visigoths. Sounds like we need more second of their name yes yes we will be getting to those shortly although they're um they're interesting characters shall we say as i've gotten to read ahead as i've been uh, researching but before we get to his interesting life uh we have to go through sources because it is the information i get to work off of we once again have the pleasure of jordan's who is becoming more and more suspicious. I keep coming around to other like sources and things like that being like, yeah, Jordan said this, but we're not, we don't really believe that because another source here said this thing about a different person. So I don't know We're I, I, hopefully he, he has some good information. He's what we got to work with. We of course have our favorite Victorian Gibbon. And the last, like last week, the story of the Goths by Henry Bradley, an amazing source to help me out figure this whole mess out and be able to provide a narrative. And we have a new source. Our source is almost like a god. So, I mean, he, now that's a little blasphemous. He is a saint. And, you know, they're, they're kind of ripped off the old pantheons for some saints. So I'm going to say he's almost like a god. Closer to God than any of us are going to get. That is true. He performed miracles, which we did not. He is St. Gregory of Tours. He was born into a well-off family around 538, and he died around 594. He is the patron saint of... I don't know. Could not find it. If someone knows, please let us know. I also could not find what miracles he performed beyond the grave to become a saint. I think you need to perform two miracles beyond the grave. And that's basically like someone prayed to you or something like that. And then a miracle happened in their life. And then that is, and it's gotta be like a documented thing. And then you could become sainthood and it's gotta be after you 
have died. I think it's five years after you died. So I don't know what he did to become a saint. I just know that he is an incredible source around this material. He is more well known for being a Frankish bishop and historian, and he has 10 books on the history of the Franks. So when we circle our way back to the Frankish kingdom and their whole mess with the Merovingian dynasty, he is going to be our main source. And the only reason we use him today is because uh, that our king kind of bumps up to the Franks in, a, in, in an interesting way. So despite his incredible bias, because obviously he's a, you know, he's a, <laughs> he's a bishop. He's going to have some insane Catholic bias. Even, even the Visigoths, remember, are those heretic Arians. He is some of the best information we got around this time. So with that out of the way, before we get on to the main quest, I need to give a quick disclaimer. The narrative you're about to hear here is through the view of the monarch we are ranking using the best sources available. There are many ways to tell history. This is our version of it. My goal when we are telling the story is to be able so you can see it through the eyes of the person we are ranking so you get a little more feel of like you're on the ground versus a top-down view of history. On to the main quest. Alrighty. Theodoric, I keep wanting to say the Theodoric, but it's Theodoric, comes from the royal house Balti and is said to either be the son-in-law of Alaric I or the son of Alaric I. Uh, most sources agree that he would be his son-in-law, and considering we never heard anything about a son um, in Alaric's episode or the things previous, I would have to agree unless those records got destroyed, which is possible. Yeah. It, also, not to be confused with Theodosius. <laughs> That's all I could think about reading some of this. I was like, man, this is awfully close to Theodosius. And that I agree. And then the uh, and third thing is there is another Theodoric of the Ostrogoths, who we will be um, going through after we finish off a little part of the Balti dynasty. We'll go into the Ostrogoths. There is Theodoric the Great. He is not the same person. So he is, I will call him the Theodoric, not so great, I guess. <laughs> wow. Wait, this is the Theodoric the Great or the No, other? this is not. This is the Theodoric, okay. not so great. So slight spoilers, I guess, on his scoring. You know, <laughs> we can't yeah. all be winners. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's yeah. It's just, he can't, he, ha he can't hold a candle to what that Theodoric did. Okay, I thought you were going to say you can't hold a candle what Alaric did, so... I mean, mm. Mm, oh, you had to get Alaric in there. Uh, it, it was it was inevitable. It was, it really was. So it's said that he was born in the Balkans around 390, which makes sense because that's where the Visigoths were located at then. Again, there's no direct sources. It's just this is what makes sense in terms of... Uh, the history then so if that date is correct it means that he was five years old when alaric was raised on his shield which is kind of cool to give you some kind of uh way to see like the the time difference between these kings yeah get to see papa-in-law barbarian do his work 
<laughs> yeah, he got he got a little bit of training early on. When Dwalia passed away in 418, to our great sadness, the Visigoths convened a council and decided to raise Theodoric on his shield, which I said made him Theodoric I. About five years passed by, and uh, without the scribes deeming anything worthy enough to write down. You're going to get that a lot in his reign. He has a long reign, and yet the sources are so sparse and they're so kind of scattered. Like we get a lot of stuff towards the end of his reign more than the beginning of his reign because of the events surrounding his end. Okay. Well, and it's also pretty fair, right? Because he takes rulership. Valia has done a pretty bang up job and he's, they've got some good land. Yeah. Yeah. How much trouble do you need to start? Exactly. I think it's pretty fair. I know in the grand scheme of Kings, he's not the youngest by any means, but he's like 28. If I got my math right, that's considerably young for rulership. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's not really a King to me. Right. To, to us in our days, but to them, that is like prime age. I would guess for a King to be at his prime would be around that age is like, he actually has some wisdom now that he's 28 years old. Uh-huh. And I, I'm 27 and I do not believe that at all. <laughs> so. I don't feel any wiser for my age either. So Granted, every year I think that the younger me was much dumber. So, I mean, I can agree with that. Like the 21-year-old me had no idea what the hell he was talking about, just as much as the 26-year-old me has no idea what he's talking about. So I'm sure 27-year-old me doesn't really either, but we'll have to see. Time will have to tell. That's right. However, things get kind of interesting when in 423, he reads a scroll from a messenger, which reads that the pathetic Western Roman Emperor Honorus who has been with us for a long time, has died of dropsy. <gasps> Do you know what dropsy is? Have you ever heard of this before? I feel like we've discussed this at one point, but it's something along the lines of like a really awful flu, isn't it? Yeah, best thing I could guess is it's an old term for edema, E-D-E-M-A, which is summarized to be pretty much, again, no medical background at all. Uh, There's like too much fluid in the body tissue, and eventually it generally leads to heart failure. So it's like your your skin gets really puffed up. And don't look up pictures online for just, it's not a good idea. Well, now I'm curious. (laughs) You can't say something like that and not have me look it up. How bad can it be? And can uh, as, as much as we bashed him in previous episodes, this is not a good way to go out. What's Google got for you? A lot of pictures of clowns for some reason. <laughs> okay, here we go. Okay, so far it's not so bad. But yeah, it would be pretty gross to see like an actual person. Yeah, it's all they're all poofy. And yeah, I would not want to touch someone with with it because i bet they like squeeze in the worst kind of ways oh yeah no yeah no we're gonna we're gonna move on a few days later theodoric 
received another scroll from an informant which read that the imperial officer by the name of john has seized control in ravenna <laughs> i'm so glad the usurper's name is just john just boring old john and the message also continued that gala placidia the former visigothic queen consort to atolf that's a mouthful was on her way with an army from constantinople to challenge the usurper john sick so that's kind of cool we get her back in our story so theodoric rubbed his hands in excitement like alaric before him he saw a divided rome as a great opportunity to expand his power he mobilized his forces and declared his allegiance for gala and her infant son valentinian the third so that's kind of cool you know he uh the the visigoths are working with their former queen kind of interesting before he could really do anything, though, Theodoric received news that John was put down and the infant Valentinian III claimed control under the regency of his mother, Gala. There you go. I mean, kind of sad he didn't get to do anything. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, so... Theodoric and his army, though, they didn't just get dressed up in armor and get mobilized and tense and all that for nothing. Like, come on. You know how much work it took to get in that armor? <laughs> so without a second thought, he just went and did the classic barbarian thing and turned against his ally and be not even barbarian, Visigoth thing, and started capturing wealthy Roman settlements to add to his kingdom. Sounds like he's reaching a little far. <laughs> just a little bit. Not not very good. After a while, he came upon the city of Arlis, which was uh, like a more wealthier Roman city at the time. Gala was not like her pathetic brother. She immediately sent competent general along with Hunnic allies to defeat and drive away the Visigoths. The Huns are here. All right. It's about time we have a little new people to shake up this old and decaying Rome. Theodoric was forced to sue for peace with Gala, and that peace didn't really last long for years. History repeated itself. Flat out, carbon copy, the Visigoths and Romans made treaties and broke treaties whenever it suited the other side. Sound familiar? Yeah, well, that's history for you. <laughs> yeah, we don't exactly learn from our earlier lessons. However, this weird, unstable situation kind of stopped when Theodoric received information that the Romans were forced to fight against the Franks, who were causing problems in Cologne and Trier. These cities are like uh, West Germany, right by the France border, like mm -hmm. right on the France border, if I looked at right on the map. So he, again, saw this as an opportunity and he tried to conquer the uh, port city of Narbonne. Maritus, M-A-U-R-I-T-I-U-S. I'm sure there's much better pronunciation, but that's what I got. You got a shot? Uh, Maritius. There you go. Narbonne Maritius. And this is located on the coast in southern France. This is actually a really good move because it now gives him access to the Mediterranean shipping lanes and on top of that roads to the Pyrenees, which lead to Spain. So all of that trading routes. Tactically smart, but practically cursed. 
They've had a really bad relationship with the Mediterranean. I would not want nothing to do with that. This is an ancestral stay away. Don't touch it. That is true. That is true. It has not worked out well for them. And despite his intelligence stating that the Romans were busy dealing with the Franks, um, the Romans decided that they didn't send all of their troops over there. They, in, in fact, went and grabbed a bunch of Huns as uh, mercenaries and Roman legions with them, and they started heading this way. So you can see a showdown's about to happen. Who do you think has the upper hand? He's He has the advantage of being in the city, and Rome has the advantage of being, well, Rome and the Huns. Yeah, you think that the barbarians would have a better time with this, theoretically. Theoretically, because, you know, but uh, unfortunately, he was, uh, again, soundly defeated, and he and his men had uh, fled, turn and ran behind the safety of the walls in Toulouse, his capital. Luckily for him, the part of the Roman force that just destroyed him was called back to Italy, so he got a little bit of respite. All right. Sometimes you get a stroke of luck. I don't know why they wouldn't just try and finish the job, but yeah, that's Rome for you. That's Rome, and that's, well, I think they were dealing with some other unrest over there. Rome is always dealing with unrest in this period. I would not want to be a leader or an emperor or a, or a general that acts as an emperor at this time. It just would not be great. Never leave your enemy standing. That is true. That is very true. And that is going to be good advice to the king next week. <laughs> Despite this, uh, a Roman general named Litorius, Litorius, I... Litore, uh, oh, Litorius. Litorius, thank you. Resolved to crush the Visigoths once and for all. So he had other ideas. He was along the lines of you. The, they've, the Visigoths have been... A, thorn in Rome's side since the days of Alaric, and now was the time to finally take them out. So shortly after Theodoric fled into the city, he slammed the door shut on the Romans. Pretty rude to, you know, your guests, but the Roman general quickly set up shop with a siege. It's uh, kind of funny how the tables have turned on the Visigoths. Now they're at the mercy of the men next door. They're not <laughs> the ones who are, you know, doing the sieging. The siegers have become the sieges. Yes, yes. Oh, how the tables have turned. I just can, I'm just thinking on sieges in general. Could you imagine being a poor guard on the battlement, just looking at your opponents and basically just staring battle like into the night just day after day that would just be such a for weird feeling and such a foreboding feeling and i wouldn't even know how to like empathize with that because we do I, not have that issue today you know i feel like after a certain point at least as my understanding of sieges is that they're generally mostly not that exciting like you basically you cut them off from everything and Generally speaking, it's not the most tactically sound to basically actually work on bringing them down. You just starve them out or thirst them out and let disease ravage them. And 
like sieges traditionally as as my understanding took a very long time so there's probably a certain level of just like agonizing monotony and that you just can't escape it yeah you're just looking out there and you just see the baddies while you're starving you can't do anything about it not unless you want to make a bold maneuver to try and break it yeah um that is actually a big thing and a lot of our when we go through um european history is that the sieges are actually really troublesome on both sides they last like you said so long that sometimes like the other side those soldiers are not like just general soldiers they're farmers and they just go well i need to go back to my fields because (laughs) crops aren't gonna harvest themselves yeah take supplies you either gotta stock up or make some good supply lines and yeah logistics is a pretty big part of war yeah so theodoric not liking his predicament sent out a high bishop with other clergy and pursuing the roman general of granting honorable terms of peace like in so many of their other squabbles keep in mind this roman general is like half what they call uh like pagan evil person like uh so he does not care about what the roman bishops have and what they you know want over peace they don't care they have had enough with these backstabbing annoying goss so with extreme prejudice he shoots down their pleas and is resolving himself to rid rome of this plague reasonable finally some reasonable people put these cockroaches to bed yeah so scott i'm gonna put you in the situation of our king you're theodoric you just lost a catastrophic battle your odds are lower than han navigating an asteroid field with the empire on his back your attempts at peace have failed what do you do jump to light speed um just gotta make a break for it you know you can always you can always run probably well i guess you're under siege where is yeah, he going to run just... to? He's in his capital. There's no other land. Ugh, terrible. And this is the good land. Yeah, you still got to try and break it, right? That's that's always the correct answer, is either you sit and do nothing and probably starve, and or you try and break out, right? Yeah, yeah. And like great generals throughout history, they have to think outside the box. Napoleon and George Washington, they're two huge ones that come in mind that are famous for doing this. You know, when all hope is lost, pull a rabbit out of their hat. There you go. Yeah, Trojan horse. So he ordered the city to prepare for battle, and then he clothed himself in the dress of someone who is repenting for their sins and spent many hours in prayer instead of drawing up battle plans which is interesting way of thinking so how do you think that worked out for him it must be pretty good because i have a very strange feeling that this is not a five-year rule so it must have worked out okay (laughs) but uh it's a really odd move because at least to me in my mind's eye it feels like someone and like, well, I am ready to die. This, this is it. I'm ready to meet my maker. Yeah. Ah, uh, well, it you're right. It worked. His it is said 
these are Christian sources, that his troops were inspired by his piety. They were no longer fighting for just their homes and king. They were now fighting for Christianity against heathenism. Uh-huh. I, I sense a little bit of bias here. His men, who have now been transformed into holy paladins, sallied forth and attacked the sieging force with great ferocity. The Romans were soundly defeated, and their general was captured. Well, as long as it works. Uh, lit the general was paraded through the streets in a mockery of a Roman triumph. It is said that the general heathen soothsayer saw a vision of him in a triumph through the city. <laughs> All right. Oh, the good old trope of the oracles were correct, just not in the way you want it. This reminds me of like a Greek tragedy. Oh, but those are the best kind of things. Oracles really do make them so much better. I mean, or like Anakin, because I have to bring Star Wars into everything, was the chosen one and he was to bring balance to the force. He just committed genocide on an entire religion on his way to doing so. That's right. It's a great story, right? You can visualize it. It can be passed down through generations. It's got the beats of every good myth. I don't know how much of that is fact, but it's fun. I don't know what the moral is here, though. There's always a moral. The moral is he had faith in God. Oh, That okay. is always the moral of these stories. I was thinking of, like, you know, for the for the poor Roman general of, like, something about, like, the soothsayer, like... Don't be a heretical pagan. That's that's the moral. Harumph, harumph, harumph. Only be a good Aryan Christian. <laughs> that's right. And uh, I really think it was actually that the Roman force was severely weakened and the general that left, Aetius is the general who left, and we're going to hear a lot more about him. He is a much better general than the one that was left behind. And I think the bishops were negotiated for peace and the and the Romans were really arrogant about it because they were arrogant about everything. And it kind of led to their downfall. Story's fun, though. I'm going to give him some religious points for it because it's in his story. All right. Spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terribly sorry. After the tide of the war turned into Theodoric's favor, it was the Romans' turn to sue for peace. Now they had to want to be the ones begging. So Theodoric now had the upper hand, and he demanded total possession of all southern Gaul west of the Rhone River. However, his good friend Avitus, who was an influential Roman senator, somehow persuaded him to not demand any land and just renew the Roman Gothic alliance, you know, that has been broken tons of times. Yeah, that sounds really promising. I think it should be more like, just let me have my land and leave me alone. I want nothing to do with you. That's what I would be like. Yeah, give me the land. I earned it. Fair and square. Fair and square, <laughs> we say. There's nothing fair about that. No, there is not. And uh, I don't understand alliances in this time because we keep saying an alliance happens here and then it's quickly broken. Is it like a useless non-aggression pact? Probably. I mean, like Alaric had the same thing too. Or am, am I missing something? Like I thought alliances were supposed to be you actually like help each other out, not just 
we're not going to attack each other until it's useful for us to attack each other. Well, alliances that actually help each other out is how you get World War One. <laughs> that is true. That is very true. So who's the real smarty pants here? Is it the... <laughs> Is it modern society or is it constantly broken alliances? Yeah, I, I, I don't know how the senator convinced him. He must have rolled, I'm going to go D&D route. He must have rolled a nat 20 on persuasion. I mean, what universe is this beneficial to the Visigoths? You hope that they won't attack you for a bit while you rebuild your ravaged countryside. But how can you do that when you just then go grab more land? Oh, well, yeah, they have the new land. But I was just saying, like, they get, they had enemies right on their doorstep. They got to have a little bit of breathing room. Yeah. So what happens next is a bit foggy. And once we get through it, I'll kind of um, say, like, kind of what I've thought of this whole tale. Um, this is entirely, it seems like, from Jordanes. I couldn't find, again, many sources to corroborate this. So in court, this would not be good evidence. Despite being persuaded by Avetius, his friend, quote-unquote, Theodoric did not trust the Romans at all. Reasonable. Exactly. (laughs) He needed more allies in this dangerous Game of Thrones. So he needed a good hedge against the Romans. And uh, who would you hedge against the Romans, based on what you know of this period? Hmm. If you could get those Huns. Yeah, that'd be helpful. Unfortunately, they're right now on the side of the Romans, so... Or on their own side, just the Romans are paying them. Who would you grab? Gosh, I don't even know who else I'd grab, because it sounds like pre, like Valia has kind of like done a pretty good job of ravaging <laughs> the other competition. That's true. It really paints a picture of, like, you have, you know, the... The Goths, the Romans, the Huns come in sometimes, and everyone else is much less significant. (laughs) In this particular viewpoint of our story, yes. He uh, decided uh, that he wanted an alliance with the powerful Vandal King Gazeric the Cruel. And they cemented promising. Yeah. And uh, they they cemented this alliance by the marriage of one of Theodoric's daughters to Hunneric. Gazeric's old el- eldest son as you do all right judge him by the little information i read about him Gazeric is going to be so much fun to write later he is a fearsome warlord and he goes on to sack rome in a much more vicious way than our buddy alaric like he does it in a way like rome is never going to recover from this for a long time we have the perks of sending the daughter off to be the daughter-in-law of a man whose title is cruel <laughs> i mean he probably wasn't named the cruel unless they were calling them back before you know the years but he's um, gotta had to have re- had a reputation by that oh, point though definitely there's he... no way you aren't like oh this is <laughs> geyseric the stand-up guy <laughs> that is true i mean he recently conquered the Roman provinces in Africa and made the ancient city of Carthage his capital. So he is, he is mm. riding high right now. Oh yeah. So this is going well, right? You now have allied yourself with the Romans and you got a little, you know, 
backstop. If that goes south, you have the the powerful Vandals who just kicked the Romans' butt over in Africa. However, this is not a fairy tale. It's the quest for power. Gazrick suspected his daughter-in-law was trying to poison him. As a result, he, quote, cut off her nose and mutilated her ears. He sent her back to her father in Gaul, thus despoiled of her natural charms. Wow, that's aggressive. Guessing the the the, the marriage is off too. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna say poison him, quote unquote. Like, sure, sure she did. What what is in her advantage to poison her father-in-law? It also happens that around this time, Hunneric is, while he is married to Theodoric's daughter. He is betrothed to Eudocia, who is the eldest daughter of the current emperor, Valentinian III. Oh, okay. If you read between the lines, he needed a way to marry his family into the royal family. He did it in a, in a, in a way that earned him the name The Cruel. Yeah, I can see why he's uh, earned his moniker. Yeah, yeah, not 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 so great. So this obviously sent her father, Theodoric, into a furious rage at the treatment of his daughter. She may be a pawn, but you do not, you know, that is a little above. So Gazeric, though, was smart, and he knew this was going to happen. He bribed Attila the Hun to go fight the Visigoths and keep them occupied. So what's weird about this little piece of history is it's barely mentioned at all in Gazeric's like histories and I think even Eudocia's histories it's not really mentioned mentioned so it could have been swept under the rug and this entire thing is from Jordanes he was called Gazeric the Cruel so yeah unless it's just he's had a long-standing streak going so all that particular thing is going on far off in the Danube region Alaric's old stomping grounds, Attila the Hun has entered, and his ferocious force is making it advance like a zombie horde on horseback, destroying everything in its path. This is another reason I don't think Jordan's story adds up. Attila was already going to attack the Romans, Franks, and Visigoths. He was the definition of a warmonger. He needs no incentive to attack them. Yeah, he just does what he does. Because that's the way he is. Yes. And that's why we love him. It's how he got the name, the nickname, the Scourge of God from the Europeans, which is a great nickname. Oh, that's a fun one. I haven't heard that. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that nickname. Again, you aren't going to understand this, but in Game of Thrones, actually, you might understand this one, Scott. The Army of the Undead and the Night King. Have you heard of them, at least? Eh, vaguely. All right. I haven't gotten to watching the show yet. Well, they are based off Attila and his army. So this undead menacing horde that is coming to destroy everyone unless they all band together, that was pretty much based off of Attila the Hun. It was this unstoppable force that just kept pressing westward. And all Theodoric and the rest of those kingdoms could do was just prepare for the oncoming storm. And everyone knows it's a matter of if and not when. Oh, this makes me want to play Age of Empires so bad. The Huns are a lot of fun. <laughs> Bet you're going to go play them a lot after this. Oh, yeah. It's it's time. 
Attila's army consisted of about, it's reported, about a half a million men of all the nations conquered by the Huns. His ranks consisted of the Ostrogoths, the Gepids, and many other tribes that were subdued by the Huns. It's kind of like the Persian army during the times of uh, ancient Greece, how they just kept collecting everyone. Oh, also, another one is the Mongol army, how they just kept collecting everyone they conquered yeah. and incorporated them into their force, and it's just moving along. It's kind of interesting that they would be able to subdue that many people because i don't know the the huns i guess policies on how they conquer basically at least as i understood it is that the persians basically said like yep you're in our empire now give us money you can do whatever you want faith wise and basically yeah you give us money and you fight for us we won't treat you like complete and utter garbage yeah and mongols was um give us men give us money and we won't attack you. If you All do right. not do that, we will burn your city to the ground and build a pyramid of men, women, and children's skulls. Oh, that's joyful. So, you know, there's ways of going about it. We don't know what Attila did to get these people. I'm assuming it was basically join us or die. Oh, I see. Yeah. The scourge. It's starting to show. <laughs> so... Again, you're not going to understand this, but Theodoric's first instinct was to pull a Cersei in season eight and just like, you know what? Let them take out the Romans. I'm going to sit behind my walls and I'm only going to defend myself when I'm attacked. Because uh, I'm sure that worked out well for every other kingdom and <laughs> civilization that was completely swarmed over. Of course, it, it just shows like... People are always going to do what's in their best interest 90% of the time, even if it's not against their best interest, you know, their greed and stuff like that. It's just, that's what's going to happen. That's what us humans are reduced to when it comes to that kind of thing. Well, due to his selfishness, I bet you can see where this is going. Hmm. Attila had plundered and burned his way deep into northern France. He had laid waste to regions of Lorraine, Champagne, and besieged the critical city of Orleans. Not New Orleans, just Orleans. It's the old Orleans. Yeah, the old Orleans. Unfortunately, this is so common throughout history. Obviously, we're just discussing like Hitler is an example of what happens when you refuse to help others to further your own goals, despite them being a looming threat. Eventually, there's no one left to protect you. Mm hmm. Hindsight being 2020. <laughs> it really is. But every single time they unite, it works out. Every time they don't. It doesn't. So you would think you would learn from history, but... Well, I guess you could also learn from history and say that the survivors tend to squabble amongst themselves to the nth degree, so no one really wins. Oh, you are really just all over the next episode. Yes, it's basically... Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like history repeats itself. Over yeah. and over and over again. Eventually, the Romans got through to the thick skull of Theodoric and got him to, like, listen, like, look, you need to ally with us and to save yourselves against this heathen army or our good Christian nations will perish if divided. I 
that that's what's said in the sources. I do not think it's a battle of faiths. There's uh, no way this is a battle of faiths. Remember, the Romans are that Nicene Christianity or Catholic now, I think, Christianity. And they think the Visigoths are evil heretics who are doomed to be burned in hell. So, yeah, you got nothing to write on. Not as much cool stuff to write on that. People just can't be friends. <laughs> no, God forbid. And another thing to note is that the Siege of Orleans may have never happened, and it could have just been made up by St. Gregory of Tours or Jordan, since they both were in conflict with each other per usual. And they both tell completely different stories of this battle. It's a big thing to make up. You'd think there'd be, like, archaeological evidence or something. Because sieges are of pretty big deal, and it feels like no matter how much cleanup you do, nothing is ever truly like forgotten. People always leave stuff behind. Yeah, yeah, but also like the Middle Ages are notorious for <laughs> we don't know what happened. I think there's so many memes on the internet whenever you look at history, and it's like <laughs> medieval historians. We don't know what happened. <laughs> like, yeah, gives you a chance to have a little creative license. Yeah. So, as yeah. clearly as we have maybe a city that was sieged. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. So I'm going to take that creative license. I like to think that Attila arrived outside Orleans and just scared the living daylights out of the inhabitants, just beat down the walls. You know, just really just look menacing and then just nail a dote in the Nord. Let him know that he eagerly awaits their arrival on the plains of Champagne because he knew that the Roman alliance was coming his way. So he didn't want to be squished between the walls and, you know, the oncoming force. So I like to think he just nailed a little note there. It'd be a good and classic antagonist move for a villain that the European sources love to make Attila the Hun out to be. Well, I have to admit is that if you're conquering places and threatening to burn them down otherwise and apparently leave pyramids of skulls, I don't think there's a whole lot of other ways you can paint that. Okay, the pyramids of skulls is the Mongols, not the Huns. The Huns I just apologize. burn things down. Come on. Yeah, you know, so much better. <laughs> it's not like Rome was any better. They did the same thing. They sure. wouldn't, you know, all of there's no one to root for in this time. They're all evil and it's just an absolute disaster. I'd root for Theodoric if he wasn't being a numbskull. So Regardless of how we get there, we know the mighty Hunnic armies square off against the alliance of the Romans, the Visigoths, and many other barbarian forces that have not yet succumbed to Attila's fires in the great plains of Champagne for the control of Europe. It's going to be a showdown that the bards will sing about the ages. It's a well-known battle. Yet there's so much confusion around it. Like all of the information t lighting up that we know about him is basically because of this battle. So like all the information that's been conflicting is like even the location of the battle is a hotly contested fact among historians. So. <laughs> all right. We're off to a good start. We can't even agree on the location. 
So we're going to look at this battle from the view of the Visigoths. We will look at it when we get, because we're probably going to have to see this battle again when we get to those other kingdoms. We're going to review it from their lens. So today we're just going to look at it from our buddy Theodoric's viewpoint. So let's dive on into the battle. So most of my source of this battle is this awesome YouTube video called Battle of the Catalonian Plains 451 Atius versus Attila by the awesome YouTube channel Kings and Generals. Have you ever seen them? Nah, no. Oh, but they, it if, definitely strikes me of something similar caliber like when I was a kid watching like some of like the history channel stuff. You just see like layouts of, you know, a variety of battles, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, like all the things you'd watch in like classrooms and, you know, in class, you'd probably fall asleep through half of it because they pick the most boring narrating voice possible. <laughs> the. So what's interesting about this is when the History Channel kind of went like to hell because swamp people are more enter drive up ratings somehow better than these great documentaries right the creator of kings and generals was like all right we're gonna bring those back and i think he actually was one of like the better narrators of those documentaries so he went and created this channel and it if you want a wider picture of the battle and the events leading up to it they do a mat fantastic job but that's really clear cut they, they get the advantage of showing pictures and the battlefield and things like that i'll post it in the show notes and uh so before any real fighting to set the scene, Theodoric and the Visigoths are placed on the right wing. They arrive on horseback and they dismount and they form a shield wall with archers behind. A lot of battles in medieval times is just shield wall versus shield wall generally. Especially yeah. when you get up to Britain, there's a lot of the shield walls. And it's basically you just force against each other, just stabbing in and out, you know, until one of the lines breaks. And most of the casualties in the battle happens when that line breaks, not during like the actual battle itself. Oh yeah, for sure. I I'm at least vaguely familiar with some of these old uh, battle tactics. So especially in your M empires game, I'm sure. Yeah. Except I can't click my buttons fast enough. So <laughs> it very quickly goes from like, okay, archers in back everyone else in front and then eventually just very quickly devolves into just a, a cluster fuck of just a jumbled masses that's that sounds like how i play rome total war yeah like it's it's kind of hard to maintain a nice solid line yeah yeah then again we don't exactly have like shield men you know we can't form like a proper phalanx or anything yeah so yeah so the Ostrogoths lined up directly opposite on the enemy side, on Attila's side, with their cavalry lined up in front of other Germanic infantry behind them. So we have our infantry who are like our cavalry, but they dismounted. They have a shield wall. Archers are in back. The Ostrogoths have their infantry in front, like their, their cavalry in front, and then they have infantry and back kind of an interesting stand bleed just gotta run them down you know the allens were placed in the center of the 
I guess, grid. And they were to the left of the Visigoths, who were quickly routed <laughs> by the Hunnic center led by Attila in his classic wedge formation. He just decimated them right immediately out of the gate, which, I mean, it's Attila the Hun, of course he did. He then divided his troops per usual, like he it's a standard tactic he does, down the middle, cutting off the Visigoths from the Romans who were placed on the left flank. So he basically divided the alliance, and now they were fighting on their own, and they couldn't use each other as help. And then the Huns would launch volleys off their horseback. Uh, this didn't do much. Normally this is really effective, but the shield wall really counteracted that. And then the Visigothic archers who were behind the shield wall were able to direct fire back at the advancing Hunnic cavalry. So then they took a lot of, the Hunnic cavalry took a lot of casualties during that first round because of the archers were able to get to them. Yeah. So despite, you know, that kind of being a loss for the Huns, that little maneuver was able to cover the Ostrogoths advancing. So that way the archers could not hit them on their way to being able. Mm -hmm. So it like, it was like a smoke screen almost. And then the Ostrogothic cavalry slammed straight into the Visigoth shield wall and it pushed the Visigoths backwards. And, but however, once the cavalry, because the cavalry can only get, have so much momentum, once they lost momentum, the Visigoths like regained their footing and they got their shield wall back in and they were ready to stand, you know, another round of fighting, basically. Attila then regained his troops because like they come out in like this weird circle fashion and they all come back together. And then he took his entire troops that he leads and slammed it into the left flank of the Visigoths. And while trying to encourage his troops to hold the line against this vicious attack, a dart fired from the Ostrogothic line hit Theodoric, our king. He falls to the ground and dies while the battle rages around him. Ha! Wow. All right. I honestly thought this battle would, um, I know we haven't heard the rest of the battle yet, but I, it really sounded like I thought it was just said and done with as soon as they broke the center. Uh, so, you know, props for them for probably at least recovering slightly, but we'll have to wait a couple minutes for the rest of the story. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's actually a pretty interesting battle. I normally don't want to talk too much about battles on here because some people get they're bored of them, some people like them, so we'll pick the interesting ones. So usually when this happens, you know, when the death of a king or a key general, that that causes the troops to just break and flee. But the Visigoths were made of sterner stuff. They kept fighting on. And Aetius, who was on the Roman side basically rounded the Alans who were like utterly decimated and he went I don't care if you're hurt and everything you got to get back and you got to plug up that center because that center was bleeding the Visigoths dry because Attila was able to just sheerly outnumber them and then thinking that the battle was about to be over a 
Tilla's second line of infantry behind the Ostrogoth join the battle and they try and like really break the Visigoth's morale because you know they kind of got him on the back foot. And at the same time, this is just very sto story wise. At the same time, Theodoric's son learned of his father's death while this is going on, and he descended from the ridge in like a classic movie, slammed into the right of the Ostrogoths left flank and obliterated their lines. Oh yeah, that's the good stuff. It is, it is the good stuff. And Attila had no choice, but he ordered a retreat and thus the Battle of the Catalonian Plains, also known as the Battle of Chalons, has ended. At the end of the battle, Theodoric's son Thorsmund is crowned king by the military in his place because of his heroics in battle. That's it for Theodoric. That's it for that battle. Are you ready to rate him? We are absolutely not. There is but <laughs> one burning question. And I think that listeners will also have this question. So where is the inspiration for the Lord of the Rings? Which oh. part is it? Because it can be smashing down the hillside, stubbornly sitting inside your walls uh, a little bit. Like there's there's a lot of places. I'm not sure where you had that thought in mind, but I'd like to hear it. Okay, so according to the book, The Road to Middle-Earth, you know, well-known uh, Lord of the Rings book that talks about how J.R.R. Tolkien uh, wrote in his, you know, how he created it, that uh, Theodoric served as inspiration in his creation of King Theoden of Rohan in Lord of the Rings. I have just started Lord of the Rings, so I, I've read the first book. I've read part of the second book, so I don't really, I don't really remember him. Um, he must be third book, or was he... Uh, I have only watched the movies, so you're going to have to give it some level of grace here for me because there's going to be discrepancies but he's more prevalent in the second and third okay does so does movie. he come in and smash at the end and then die or like what happens uh like why is spoiler he... alerts for things that are way too old now uh yeah it would be in the third uh he yeah he kind of like comes down the hillside and eventually yeah he does just perish okay gotcha but yeah uh it's yeah it's kind of interesting i say also the uh uh being besieged also is pretty fair on him because like oh the uh i say if you decide to end up watching the films uh the the, the battle of helms deep is truly one of my favorite just like sequences and movies ever I keep hearing about that when they compare uh, Game of Thrones Battle of the Bastards to Helm's Deep, so. Yeah, like, for as dated as those movies are, because they're pretty old at this point, as it turns out, just using practical effects, you know, not just CGIing everything, mm -hmm. still makes it look pretty good. Yeah. So, I'm I'm a fan, and I just recently rewatched the movies, so it's as fresh in my head. Oh, cool. Um, as when it came out in, I don't know, like, what, 2005 or something? 
I don't know. Yeah, I just started watching the extended cut, and I mean, I just barely got into it where um, Gandalf just arrived uh, at the Shire. Wow, it took oh. a little bit. I would have been crucified. Got a ways to go. Yeah, I know. I got a ways to go. I, I read all the first books, so I know that one, and then I get to the part where Gandalf has the great final line, run, you fools, and then dies but i know he gets raised to gandalf the white and becomes some sort of quasi god thing okay but that that was important because i was just like we're giving we're giving this whole thing of this is the inspiration and i was like we can't let this slide so (laughs) i'm glad we got that out of the way so now there you go now we can rate him all righty Our first category is the real Game of Thrones. I have some a little bit of extra notes that didn't fit in the narrative. I said his reign was pretty long. So how do you think the length of it was based on the material that we had? He's got to be like, because it sounds like there's a lot of gaps. Probably got like a 20, good 20, 25 years. It's pretty lengthy for King, I feel. Yeah, yeah, pretty close, pretty close. Uh, He reigned from 418 to 451, so around 33 years. We really don't have much on his reign compared to, like, the stuff that happened was basically, like, little parts, little snapshots. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right, well, what else we got? His long reign indicates, like, he was able to handle both the pro and anti-Roman factions in his kingdom. The Visigoths at this time have, like, they're very divided, like <laughs> our uh, politics are divided. And uh, so he's be able to hold both of those factions at bay and not have any rebellions on his side while he's dealing with the Romans. Yeah, that's a miracle in its own right, because judging you've had like such a mixed bag experience with the Romans, I can't imagine you don't have a lot of people just being like, yeah, let's just side with Rome, call it a day. Look at this beautiful land we're on. Let's just sit on this land like reasonable people. But then you remember Rome is not very well known for their honesty and letting you keep your land. So just prepare for the worst. Hope for the best. Prepare for the worst. Yeah, that's good advice. The Visigothic military at this time was also weaker than the Romans. So he only attacked rome when they were dealing with bigger issues he was kind of being smart about it that he would only go after them when the romans were at their weakest which is a classic visigothic tactic that alaric used and it's really like it's something to recognize it's like it's a good move to do granted you're gonna have to face the consequences of when they get back to their full force but remember rome at this time was dealing with (laughs) whack-a-mole problems like soon as one put down another one popped up so it, it was a good risk you're you're not in you're not nomadic anymore and you're not in spain like there's just too much being too close to rome that's a that's a mess i wouldn't want to tangle with unless you're pretty confident you can yeah you can tangle because i mean obviously it didn't really work out super great for him a lot of the time he got out by on accounts of the saint i believe right 
literal or uh, or Jordan's one of the two literally a miracle <laughs> like <laughs> yeah i the thing that was smart though is like rome was not in a position to retaliate they can push them back and that's all they could do and this was constant pattern probably remember we didn't talk about all of their on and off wars so he probably got to know his enemy really well in that time and he probably knew I can keep inching my way forward because Rome can never flat out take me out because they are never in a good position to retaliate. They never have. They just get back to status quo. Except that one time they were close. <laughs> yeah. Or well, that was when they were invading the the city that they kind of gotten the besieged, yes. Yeah. So what do you think? How do you how well do you think he did in the real Game of Thrones? Sounds like he played everything as reasonably well as he tried he could to do, but sounds like things just didn't work out for him and he misread the wins. Yeah, he I would have to agree. Like he made good moves, but I think it wasn't enough. Yeah, it sounds like he made they would have been good moves if his military was better. Correct, but they weren't. I mean, you exactly. And therefore, it's a bad move. Yeah. So, I mean, I get what he was trying to do. It's, I think it's better in this time to take more risks than to sit back and just chill during this time. There's a classic quote that um, Cersei says, in the Game of Thrones, you either win or you die. So you always got to be playing. Otherwise, you're going to get assassinated. You get complacent. It's just never going to work out for you that way. So it's yeah, good he was taking but, risks. And he ruled for 33 years. There's also the the fable of just overextending, too. So it, it kind of cuts both ways. He may have been, like, fairly long-lived and long-ruling. I think he's our longest king so far. That's true. I, I, I And he did get some land out of the deal. So if you're talking just, like, being able to play politics. I think he did. He did okay. The thing I'm going to have to go on him is some reason he decided not to demand all of Gaul from Rome when he was, when they were on the back foot, he could have gotten so much more, you know, taxes. And then therefore he could have built up his military a little bit more, gained a little more power. I don't know Mm -hmm. if, that Roman senator, what he said to him, maybe he said, look, Attila's on the move. Do you really want to be fighting with us over this land all the time while Attila's advancing? I I don't Mm -hmm. know. Yeah, at least he uh, opened up to an alliance, at least before it was too late. So there's that. Yeah. So uh, what's your score for him? I'm curious on Uh, this one. Yeah, this is kind of all across the board. He's like done some pretty great things and also just just lousy things i would say good i don't think he did a single great thing besides he helped win against attila the hun and that was more, more because land. his son than he got more land didn't he uh but then he gave it away because he didn't demand it so right. i mean kind of kind of not yeah yeah so <sighs> it's gotta be like a five five oh boy because he he basically in my thoughts is he maintained 
he like he didn't really get a whole lot of gains from Rome and he didn't really and he survived I guess an onslaught of um of Attila the Hun so well, he, no, he didn't know, survive on Attila. Oh, I'm sorry. Not <laughs> he him died surviving, from but his, I say him. I say his people. He, I say in the in the yes. when I'm giving his yeah his rating, I rate him and his relation to yeah his uh, kingdom. Yeah. So his kingdom yeah, did his win legacy at the end of lives day. on through this horrible onslaught. I mean, but yeah, it feels he, like he didn't really get any gains out of this. No, I really. He weathered the storm, which you get the gold star, I guess. I was going to go four, but I'm starting to agree with you five. I think that's not a bad way. Because like you said, he just maintained. He did not make this kingdom go worse. It's about as neutral as you get. And I think that, you know, not every moment has to be a perfect, like, you know, you did awesome politics and. Mm-hmm. rocketed your kingdom forth sometimes the winds just aren't with you and clearly they weren't no. so i think he's he gets a solid five for not making things really any better or worse at least as i understand it all right sounds good i'll match you for that yeah all right so that's a five and a five for a ten off to a solid start all righty our second category royal mischief he renewed the Gothic tradition of formally aligning with Rome and then backstabbing it every chance he got. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the good old two day alliance. Yeah. And uh, he went and turned. Yeah. Like he burned down. A, I don't know if he burned cities, but he definitely captured them right after uh, Gala was, you know, said, oh, no. He's like, well, I got dressed up for everything. Yeah. Um, that's the only royal mischief I have of him is the backstabbing of Rome. And I mean, that's just kind of, kind of funny that that's normal now, but. Well, it's still mischief. It's somewhat significant considering it sounds like that they did a lot of back and forth alliances over the course of his reign. Yeah. Uh, He's got to get something. Like, again, it's probably just, like, a four or something or a three. Like, it's enough to say that he did, but not enough to say that it was really mischievous or outlandish, you know? Uh, I'm going to dock him a little bit because of his religious... Like, he did not, did not seem that he was so... I'm going to give him a point for backstabbing with Rome. That's the only thing I can do. I don't think it's that impressive in terms of royal mischief. That was just the nature of the game back then, regardless of who it was with. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, let's see. Mischievous? Yeah, I'll give him a two. Right, so two for me, one for you. Yep. Total of three. Ooh, all righty. Our third category, religious passion. He's got finally. Get, he's got to get some points. We finally have someone to get some points. He subs, He literally submitted himself to the will of God by dressing up as a penitent before the battle for his capital. Like pretty high points. Either that, or he's just like really 
good actor. You know, he's just like, you know what will inspire these men? A little bit of good old-fashioned faith. I don't <laughs> think so. Remember how religion was back then. It was their every breathing moment was religion. God was first and foremost out of everything. Apparently not first and foremost, uh, you know, in the front of everyone's mind is they're uh, doing horrible, unspeakable things like mutilating people's faces. Yeah, that's, 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 that's something else. That's yeah. We need the, we need the, the cool, like, you know, modern day Christianity. <laughs> A lot nicer. Yeah. They don't like comparison. They don't burn people at the stake anymore. Hopefully not. So yeah, let's go. We, we got to give ourselves, give him some, some good boy points for religious passion here. So I'm going to go for, I think it's a solid, he didn't build any churches, didn't really further the church at all, but he literally submitted to the will of God. So got to give him some for that. Yeah. I, he's enough to write about that. You can get some more religious biased sources on him. A four is probably about right. He's yeah. He he wasn't on the, he wasn't on the religious plan. I guess it was not. I am basing my rule off of faith. Cor yeah, correct. Yeah. So yeah, a four is probably about as good as he's gonna get. So a four and a four for eight. I think that's fair. Our fourth category, alignment. Oh boy um where do we even start all right well let's start with the good and evil let's get that out of the way um neutral yeah there's really not much to say about him a man who hides inside his walls is either going to be neutral or well yeah neutral probably yeah. um and is he you know lawful chaotic i think somewhere along the lines probably also just pretty darn neutral i'm gonna give him zero points true neutral i you, you are know. the most boring ruler <laughs> sir <laughs> you know it's he lived a long time and i think that says a lot about his, the excitement of his rule mm -hmm. <laughs> yep and that's not a bad thing it's just not in our show that that's you're not going to get rated high for it but i would much rather live under a king where you're bored rather than a king that's always at war yeah the score is not are you an effective ruler although that's taken into consideration yes it's were you a cool ruler <laughs> yes. the rule of cool is is paramount here yes. are you mischievous probably not smart but boy does it make a better story than <laughs> you know mr joe practical who always does everything right so yeah all right our fifth category out of five uh is stability he was able to pacify his nobles and eliminate any internal squabbles and uh new information he strengthened the visigothic kingdom as an agricultural powerhouse he took the land that walia gave him and he used it and really developed it for the better of their trade and really made them no longer begging for food like they've been for the last how many kings. There we go. 
that's what we really want to see. And that's what I mean personally by like, I think he should have just hung back a lot more than what he did yeah. because you can establish, can set yourself down, begin to build up, get some food. You know, we don't want another one of those famines rolling through like Valia did when he was in Spain. Yeah. So this is a lot better. He also so reigned great. 33 years. So long ass time long time and not much information on it tells me the scribes were bored which is a good thing for this category think about this and while i know this is entirely possible it's circumstantial and anecdotal from the the battle story but stable enough that apparently the lines didn't even break when he went down so clearly <laughs> yeah there's a sense of stability even after his death so i think he's about as stable as stable as can be he's just a non-entity he had a son had an heir <laughs> he had three sons oh he's gotta be like a five right like he's uh, like that's so stable but he's like, still what, having what more are you gonna do build walls like but he's still battling with rome constantly it's not like i mean it's the equivalent of pax romana in rome because rome was like basically never at peace they were always battling on the um the outskirts but they were you know this is like when it was like solid on the inside I'm going to go four. I think there's much more stable kings and queens in the future. But All right. Well, I guess you've seen that and I have not. So <laughs> I'm willing to concede a four just, yeah, because, yeah, I guess he, he did make a lot of trouble going back and forth with his alliances, even if that was common. Correct. Um, yep. So, yeah, I guess he gets a he gets a four and a four for eight. But yeah, good boy. Good job. Yeah. Our final category, Dynasty. So he's got quite a bit here. He substantially strengthened the royal authority of the Visigothic kings. They are now established. Like you said, he, the Visigoths are here to stay. You got to deal with them. He made that happen. He also is known for paying the ultimate sacrifice to help defeat Attila the Hun, who is considered the scourge of God. His three sons go on to succeed the throne. I think the, that's the first time we've ever had a son that will uh, succeed him. Yeah, and it's pretty incredible. Attila, the scourge of of uh, theodoric <laughs> and then a big dynasty point he got pop culture he is the inspiration behind king theoden of rohan in lord of the rings so there we go he's got some good points here yeah sounds like again took everything valia gave him managed to not entirely muck it up yeah yeah so that's, that's you know pretty good yeah, we actually have a starting of a dynasty. So what do we give a, what do we give a starting dynasty? <laughs> I think there's a lot going for him. I think you could give him two points for authority of the Visigoths, 
two points for being known as the man who helped defeat Attila the Hun. Two points for being the first time that the Visigothic son succeeded his father onto the throne. He was still unofficially elected, but this is basically going to come a pattern now is like their sons basically just succeed them. Yeah. So although, you know, I guess how much do you, you, I guess, yeah, you can't necessarily weigh the first any heavier than say the last potentially. Right. Well, or well, not the last, but you know, later down the line. Right. Correct. Yeah. He, the the big thing is he fathered three Visigothic rulers. They all go on to succeed Mm. the throne, which should tell you what we're about to go through in our future. Uh (laughs) Um, and then again, I got to give him some extra points for being a pop culture reference. Uh, I, how is King Theoden well known in Lord of the Rings? I am sure people are screaming at me, and I'm sorry that I am ignorant. He is, an, but he's. I like him a lot. Okay, so definitely. He's enough of a main kind of. He's a good. Oh, he's like it, He's a, a, a. I'd say a pretty major player as far as like the overall plot. He's not necessarily in like. Uh, you know, he's not the main party. Correct, but like boy does did they give that guy just like some you know the awesome heroic speeches and things like that okay okay so you get stuff like that like i i really like him at least you know the way they portray him in the movie awesome stuff okay all right and then i'll give him two points for that and that will be a total of eight for me okay let's see if i can guess yeah that is a pretty strong case yeah, I'll also uh, keep it nice and lazy. We're not going to have a lot of discrepancy here, and I'll keep it an eight as well, which rockets him up 16 points. So he's, you know, got a lot going for him. Alrighty, before we decide his fate, Scott, what is the total? All right. So for me giving him 23 and you giving him 22, a total of 45. So pretty darn good we are always pretty close to each other even if like we go way off on one category or another yeah that's true we have had a little divergence here and there but again you discuss things enough you kind of converge a little bit yeah so uh he's yeah he's he's up there that's for sure not quite a valia but he's close is he under valia just yeah just yeah, under Vali is 49 to his 45. So, and then who's after him? Uh, in order, no, like be... lower, like lower, who's lower than him? Yeah, just uh, like Atolf. Atolf. So, it, okay. so the ranking, uh, so far would be Alaric, Valia, uh, Theodoric, Atolf, and then Sigaric. I think he's also our first king that died in battle. Yeah, that's pretty. I'm gonna have to give. Uh, that's pretty badass. <laughs> oh, I kind of want to give him a, another point in dynasty just for that alone. Uh, you know, not a lot of glory of dynasty for that. Well, I guess apart from come on, you know, it sounds cool. It does sound cool. I'm gonna go nine. I'll, I'm sorry to change. I'll your... let you do that. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna go nine. Forty six. <laughs> He's still no Valia. There we go. All righty. So based on our review of him, should he be raised to high king 
reduced to a lesser lord or burned at the stake gosh to me despite like the fact that we can really sing his praises in dynasty doesn't feel like he is no hiking yeah like it doesn't really feel like like i said he he did the, the good job he would be good as reduced to the lesser lord of the court i don't think he deserves to be burned at the stake he didn't do anything no. egregious i think he is he's like a he's like a, a higher lesser lord though like yeah you know yeah but he's give bo- him he's boring he's like that one guy who just is just like no one really talks to he just kind of sits there reads his book and <laughs> i don't know i mean he's just like the end of his reign is pretty darn exciting that is he true gets to, he gets to that has the true. privilege of living in some of the more exciting times in history of fighting the huns that is so, true that's pretty cool yeah yeah i agree like he uh it's also cool he's an inspiration like he's the first king i think we have that's an inspiration for uh pop culture reference so that's pretty cool i, I enjoyed that yeah it's not something I expected. Either did I. When I first saw, it, I was like, "No way!" And I like, I made sure to like look it up and double check. And yep, that's what, according to that book, which I'm gonna guess that that's pretty accurate. That uh, probably now now it makes me want to watch the movie again, so that way I can like kind of kind of picture it a little bit and yeah. see like where that where it lines up. Because, but again, the books are always much different than you know the movies and i have a very strong feeling that the movies do not give king theoden nearly the time nor the dialogue that he deserves so yeah as you do yeah that's that's kind of how the movies go that's why i'm only watching the extended cut and even that i'm sure cuts things out because those books were huge that he did yeah oh yeah but well yeah the extended cut so much more worth to watch than the theatric release yeah it was a lot of context it was a little jarring to see the graphics after i've gotten used to like game of thrones and like those kind of graphics and stuff and then you get like thrown into middle earth and you're like oh boy you can definitely tell the difference (laughs) yeah well everything's a lot more bright and colorful too and that is very true but i i kind of like it but yeah some they're not a ton but there are some pretty dated like CGI effects, but thankfully there's a lot more practical effects. It's not, this it's was... not like the CGI and star Wars. What <laughs> two and three. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's rotten. Oh, could you imagine being an actor or actress during that? And that they earned their money on that one. Cause yeah. that would be hard yes. to act. Yeah, nothing, just acting on a green screen the entire time. And, like, what they have now, have you seen the, like, domes they create now for acting? They can, like, put the scene so, like, the... They can, like, computer-generate the scene so that way the director can see the special effects while the acting, like, is going on. They don't have to wait till, like, production to see it. And that's insanity. And the actors also get to see, like the background and stuff so they they talk like they feel like they're in that world it's just so crazy how far we've come well it's about time we gave the the actors the tools to succeed you know because they already weren't succeeding enough i guess 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, one, I have to shout out Patty Constantine for House of the Dragon, one of the best acting performances I have ever seen on his role of King Viserys. I know you didn't watch it, but nope. it's the first time I've ever like been in a TV show and just went, oh my God, the acting is just incredible. I've never, you know been able to like just look at it and be like oh my like it was that awesome and it's clear across like online people say the same thing so all right i'll have to take your word for it oh anyway well before we close out we want to thank the rex factor and spanish arpada behind the inspiration for this ambitious journey we've decided to go on and Thank you listeners for dealing with mine and Scott's nonsense and coming along on us for our quest for power. If you liked our story, please tell a friend or family member about it. If you really want to go the extra mile, please review us on whatever platform you use. Give us five stars. Doesn't matter what you say. Just tell us what you thought about our Kings that you've gone through or that particular one that you want to talk about. And uh, so we can continue to give you great stories and uh, introduce others that may enjoy our content. If you have any comments or questions, please message us on Facebook. Until next time, the king is dead. Long live the king. <laughs> <laughs>